Since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, millions of Americans faced a two-part struggle, staying healthy and staying employed. Thanks for tuning in to season two of the Texas Public Policy Foundation's Road to Recovery podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Davis-Valdez, policy analyst with the Next Generation Texas team, where I focus on career and technical education and workforce development issues. Throughout the season, we'll be joined by business owners, educators, and experts who are finding innovative ways to help Texans of all ages prepare for and find great jobs in the post-COVID economy. Let's dive in. My guest today is Tamara Jacoby. She is president of Opportunity America, a Washington-based nonprofit working to promote economic mobility, work, skills, careers, ownership, and entrepreneurship for poor and working Americans. A former journalist and author, she was a senior writer and justice editor at Newsweek, and before that, the deputy editor of the New York Times op-ed page. She is the author of Someone Else's House, America's Unfinished Struggle for Integration. Her edited volumes include This Way Up, New Thinking About Poverty and Economic Mobility, which was published in 2014. Her articles have appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the Weekly Standard, and Foreign Affairs, among other publications. I've been a huge fan of her work for a while, and her recent blockbuster report on the Kentucky Federation for Advanced Manufacturing Program, or FAME, issued by Opportunity America and the Brookings Institute, provides a great theme for our conversation today about the power of apprenticeship. The Wall Street Journal reported on the findings of this study in October, and they're just stunning. According to the journal, the study tracked 389 students who began a FAME program between fall 2010 and fall 2016, and compared them with students at the same schools of similar age and academic background. One year after graduation, the typical FAME graduate earned $59,164, compared with 36,379 for the non-FAME graduate. Five years out, the FAME graduate earned $98,000 compared with 52,783 for non-FAME graduates. I had to re read the report back to front and over again because I couldn't actually believe those results. And so I think the place I'd like to start today, Tamar, is with a story of an individual whose life was changed by an employer-driven training program. Yeah, so, you know, it's hard to help adults who want to start their lives over or learn a new skill. They aren't, aren't, they're not predisposed to go sit in classes when they, they haven't sat in a class for a long time. You know, the last time they sat in class, they might maybe weren't so good at it. Otherwise, they would, you know, be in a different place in life. But um, sometimes you come across a program that really has done it right. And I'll just never forget this man I met. Uh, in North Carolina a couple of years ago. His name was Brian Coward. And when I met him, he was 36, African-American man, you know, from a poor family in a pretty rural part of North Carolina. And he'd been to college, like he'd been to community college and gotten not one, but two associate degrees. And then he tried to make a living. And, you know, he started an auto detailing shop. It didn't really work. He ended up really floating around the factories in North Carolina where he lives, you know, meatpacking, um, furniture, you know, just really lowest level production jobs. And then he heard about a program that was run by the local community 
community college in partnership with a handful of employers. And the goal was, the point was that these employers had come together and they had said, here's what we really need in workers. And we want you, the community college, to teach them that. You don't, don't teach them your curriculum that you've stored up over 20 years. No need to stretch it out to a semester length. Teach it as quickly as possible. You know, we'll make sure that you're teaching the right things. We'll work with you to get an employ uh, an instructor who really comes out of industry and knows what the kids need to know. And we'll guarantee the young people, they're not kids, we'll guarantee the, the, the trainees um, job interviews at the end. And sure enough, Brian Coward went through this program. He was done in 13 weeks. He had his interview, and now he was working at his what he called his dream job, which was in the snazziest manufacturing facility in the region where they were making a fuselages for, for Boeing airplanes. Wow. And, um, you know, it was just, it was, it was the story of, it was, a, it was a microcosm of how it can work. Employers, community college, working closely together, helping these these mid-career adults who aren't necessarily comfortable in school get through the program and get to work as quickly as possible with the right skills. There's so many threads there I want to pick up on uh, that I heard, and I, I think I would like to pick up on one aspect of this, and that's the short-term nature of it. So it's 13 weeks in length, which is shorter than a typical semester. Uh, so you're telling me that a person can get skills in 13 weeks and it doesn't have to be an academic sem semester. Is that correct? Well, again, I, I certainly am. And different skills take different amounts of time right. to learn, right? right? If all I need to move up on the job is to learn to use Excel pivot tables, you know, I can probably mm -hmm. learn that in a few days. This manufacturing boot camp was 13 weeks. Some other things might be eight weeks. It's common. Like, the problem is that your Pell Grant, right? Your federal Pell Grant will only pay if it's, basically 15, 16 weeks. And so lots of colleges pad out their programs. So here's this 13-week course you can do in 13 weeks. That's better for the learner because he gets right into the labor market. That's better for the employer because they get the worker right away. And it's better for the school because the school doesn't waste time teaching stuff they don't need to teach. But most colleges stretch it out so that, so that, so that the learners can use their Pell Grant funding to pay for it. You know, I think we should change that in Washington. That's a whole nother story. Well, that's a, that's a really good point. I think we're gonna hear a lot more about community colleges over the next uh, few years. That's, that's the rumor on the street. So there's probably some key reforms that need to happen there um, as well. And we can dig into those. Um, so one of the things I wanted to ask you about that struck me is, okay, so you can't use your Pell Grant. So how do you pay for something like this? So if you could dive into a little bit of how that works on the funding side. Yeah, I don't remember exactly. Actually, that's a good question. And you I, mm -hmm. forgive me how they funded that boot camp. Mm -hmm. It must have been the I think it was now that I'm thinking about it, I think it must have been the employers came mm -hmm. together and paid. So the employers subsidizes subsidize okay. it. Excuse me. Um, yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. That happens a lot in these kinds of uh, instances because it's so short term. The employer figures, well, I'll get a return quickly. So it's, again, not pushing that out farther than it needs to be, which is a really key thing folks in academia don't quite get sometimes. And the, and the employer created, co-developed the curriculum, right? That's the other key thing. The, the employer knows that you're teaching exactly what, you know, um, Brian and Susie and Jimmy mm -hmm. need to know when they get to the factory and, right. and or the plant or whatever it is. And, that, and that, that's key. Employers are much more willing to pay when they know they're going to get something useful. 
Well, let's also talk about that. So one of the things that I think you mentioned when you're dealing with mid-career professionals, going back to school, trying to reskill, upskill as, as needed, um, one of the things that's difficult is persisting, right? I mean, life gets in the way. I'm a, I'm a mid-career person. I understand this. You understand this. So let's talk a little bit about that. And what are, you know, having the employer involved and having that sort of that guaranteed job at the end. That's Tell the me more about how that that's plays in. Thing. When you can see, I think of it almost as a slide to an end that you can see. You know, you, it's not like, like, like you know, the, the perception we all do things where we know that we're embarking on a path and it's going to take a while and I can't quite see the end of the path, but mm-hmm. I'm sort of into it. And, but I, that's hard to do when I, mm-hmm. when I see right there across the street is the job I want. All I have to do is go that far. It's just much easier for people. And I think, the, I think having the, the, that guaranteed interview at the end is mm-hmm. a specific employer or a few specific employers and a guaranteed interview really helps with that. Not that we can't have longer programs, and we'll talk in a minute about BAME, which is a longer program, but especially for those, um, for those, for mid-career adults. I mean, the other piece for mid-career adults is you want to figure out the shortest distance between the skills they have and the skills they're going to need. So, you know, it doesn't make sense for, like, a wait, an unemployed waiter to decide he wants to be, you know, a nurse's aide. Like that is mm-hmm. too far from what he knows. Mm-hmm. The unemployed waiter should take his customer service skills and learn a little bit about IT or learn a little bit about entre- business management. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, so you want to figure out the place where you can top up and go from what you are to something better, you know, as, as easily and quickly as possible. And, you know, the, the, so and that's another just key concept that we didn't do in the past. You know, in the past, we, right. would, take, we would take adults and tell them, well, we need, you know, this now. So go learn that. And, <laughs> and that so you're, you're, saying, you're saying the answer for people who are out of work right now uh, in the service industry and maybe even in uh, mining and pipe fitting is not go learn to code. Is that what you're saying? Well, I mean, it, you know, again, if you're good at that, but you, right. you know, take what you have and see the shortest distance to a bet to a paycheck and a growing, right. a, a good paycheck in a growing industry and learn that. And mm-hmm. it might be something IT, you know, sure. and a lot of things it will be adding IT to what you already know, but, right. but, but, right, but and, and yeah. So the, the, I think what's interesting when we have these conversations about upscaling frequently, what gets thrown back is, well, you're just telling everyone to go do X. And so what I'm hearing from you is it's customized. Every person's different. So your next step up might look different than somebody else's step up. That's definitely true. And that's why you, that's why, I mean, that's why for those programs, these dislocated adult programs, you really need good advice, right? And navigate Mm -hmm. support because yes, what what Tamar Jacoby knows and can learn is very different from what, from what, you know, Aaron knows and can learn. And we have to, we need advice and then we need help seeing that goal across the street. And Mm -hmm. um, that, that's a big part of it for mid-career adults. And that was built into this program that Brian Coward was in. I love that. There's so much there that we could continue to unpack. I did want to get kind of into the FAME program a little bit now because that's the that's the marquee here. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the what of the program, sort of how it works. Um, and then I'd love to really spend our time talking about the who of the program, right? Because you got to know these folks really well and their stories are so um, interesting and compelling. Yeah, great. So, so FAME is a classic apprenticeship program, although it's not always 
but we'll talk about that in a minute. It's a classic apprenticeship program. Um, and what that means is the learners spend part of the day in a classroom and part or part of the week in a classroom and then part of the week on the job. And ideally in a classic apprenticeship, the, the two sides reinforce each other. So what you're learning in class gets reinforced by you practice it on the job and being on the job helps you understand what questions to ask in class and why class matters. So it reinforces that way. And in a, in a classic apprenticeship, you get paid. And there's the big distinction, we can get to that maybe later, is, you know, the government sanctions some apprenticeships, and those are called registered apprenticeships. But then there's a lot of apprenticeships out there that aren't sanctioned by the government. Um, fame is in that category, mostly. Um, but then what fame adds to it that's really special is three is two things. One is that um, they say that technical skills are not the only or most important thing. That everybody needs technical skills, but then they also need two kinds, not just one, but two different kinds of what some people call soft skills, what some people call employability skills. The two different kinds are the kind that's about discipline and showing up on time and 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 you know dressing properly and speaking knowing how to speak to your boss and all of those basic workplace competencies and then the other kind is problem solving and critical thinking and being able to get to the bottom of a problem and that's something that you know more as as robots take over the routine jobs more and more jobs need critical thinking and problem solving so fame is split into it's the curriculum is split into three equal parts technical you know, show up and behave properly, professional behaviors, and this critical thinking problem solving. That's the first distinguishing thing about fame. The second distinguishing thing about fame, and now we're coming back to a theme we've already talked about a little bit, is the intensive employer engagement. I mean, every apprenticeship needs an employer because you have to go to work someplace, but the fame program is really of employers, by employers, for employers. Employers came together and wrote the program. Um, employers picked the students. Employers are in the driver's seat with the community college. In many programs, the community college is sort of in the driver's seat and the employer checks a box. I, I read about it. Um, in fame, the employers go to the employers tell the college, if you won't rip out your classrooms and put in a manufacturing floor, we're not interested in working with you. If you won't hire the people that we want to hire who used to work in the industry, we're not interested in working with you. And and the and the employers, you know, come to the college every month and talk about how's Jimmy and Susie doing. So so it's a class, you know, in a nutshell, classic apprenticeship with these but with a very interesting curriculum, thoughtful curriculum and this intense employer engagement and employer driven so that, and the, the point is not to keep employers happy. The point is so that the people, I mean, it does keep the employers happy, but the point is that the graduates have the skills that employers need because employers developed it. Wow, I love that three-part idea. Um, and I especially love what you said about um, the, the third component, which is the critical thinking ability as it relates to automation, which to me is kind of a transferable skill hopefully absolutely. absolutely well and we're all gonna have to you know the robot robots are gonna encourage you know get to all of our jobs and um we're gonna have to both be, be strategic about how we manage our careers which is problem solving mm -hmm. critical thinking but but what people are gonna what you know the two different things that humans can do that robots can't do one is kind of empathy and helping mm -hmm. other humans and the other is problem solving and critical thinking and it's it's it, you know and you need it for what fame is a is a pro, is a program for um, industrial maintenance techs. Those are people who kind of fix the machinery in a factory or fix the robot. 
not to find a point on it, um, in a factory. And they need problem solving because they're fixing things and solving bottlenecks. But everybody needs problem solving because they're solving bottlenecks and getting through bottlenecks. I love that. Um, You know, we talk about the rise of automation coming for our jobs, and that can sometimes cause fear. But I love what you just pointed out, which is that somebody's got to build the robots and keep them working. And um, there are certain jobs that, you know, humans are just really good at doing. And while we might get replaced by robots someday, eventually, um, that 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 horizon is probably not as close as some people are predicting. And and like the you know, I mean, there's pessimists and optimists about about automation, but the optimists, and I think I'm closer to that camp, you know, say that it's going to create all kinds of new positions because you are going to have to program and maintain and whatever the robots, and you are going to have to be, think strategically, and you are going to need different kinds. I mean, there's, it's going to create, and, and the, I mean, as in the first industrial revolution or the industrial revolution, really, because um, you can do things faster and better, you create more demand. And so there's more yeah. demand for certain jobs. So, I mean, I'm, you know, in the hope that, it, yes, it will be it'll be a difficult transition and yes a lot of people will lose their jobs but there will also be a lot of new jobs created and the key is can we train people for them can we train for adults i mean that's why this is an important conversation well it's important at any time but i think especially post-covid as we look forward and uh, certain industries have been hit harder than others so hospitality and leisure um, their numbers are way down like 15 17 percent in texas Um, and some of those jobs will come back you know i think um some probably won't. Sometimes businesses are going to replace with kiosks, yep. likely. And so what you said earlier about, you know, not everybody needs the same top-up skills as others is especially relevant now, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. Not everybody needs the t- same top-up skills, and people need to be really strategic about what they aim for. You know, mm-hmm. I should not start over. When I have to start over, I should not try to be a ballet dancer, you know. I should try to do something that, that you know, fun as I might think it would be. I should do something that's you know, the term is adjacent. You know, what, what, what's, the, what's an adjacent job that I can learn enough skill to, to do? That's fantastic. Okay, so I think that was a good overview of kind of the what of the program and the way it works. Um, let's dive in now to talk about the wonderful people who took part in this program and if you can tell us about their stories and maybe some of the people who even conceived of the program too. Yeah, so so it's this program started actually with a bunch of employers in Kentucky, including um, Toyota. It's now just, you know, worth noting, it's now in, I think, 13 states, getting close to 400 companies. So this is really, you know, catching on across the country. And the students are a little bit different. It's a little bit different mix depending on where you go. But it's often all, not maybe not always, but often a mix of recent high school graduates who otherwise would be on their way to a community college. And sometimes recent high school graduates who would be on their way to like an engineering degree, because you want people that are interested in machinery and engineering. And then in, and then the other component of the mix is um, in many places, the companies that are involved look at their production facility and they see some very skilled people still on the entry-level rungs up the ladder who they want to promote, and they see fame as a good way to get these people ready for a promotion. So your typical fame class is a mix of young 
high school grads and these older, often in the Kentucky family, there were many of the men, it's, it's women in many places, but older workers, you know, mid-30s even, who mm-hmm. are even older, who've been in a, in, a, in a manufacturing facility for a long time, have been working, you know, with, as they call it, on the line, and are now going to get promoted to be the, the, the problem solver, and they go to fame. And, and, and they were, you know, I kind of got very interested in them because they're so different and so special. The, the young people are interesting, too. Um, fame does have a little bit of an academic, um, you know, they, they, you, have to, you have to have a good, pretty good, decent grades to get in. And there's sort of interviews, there's employer selection process. And so we asked people, and this was just voluntary, we don't know for sure, but we asked them, would you count yourself in the bottom third of your high school class, the middle third, or the top third? And just about everybody in the, no, almost no one in the program that we, you know, took our survey said they were in the bottom third. So you had kind of middling high school students, and you had very good high school students. And then you had these who could have been engineers, but who liked the idea of starting with something that was more hands-on. And you saw, and then you had these older workers. And you saw this when you went, you know, I did focus groups with, we did focus groups and then a survey with fame, fame graduates. And you saw it when you met them. You saw the high school kids who were kind of struggling. You saw the people who you could tell, you know, you would meet someday in a, in a suit, uh, you know, who were the engineering, whatever. And then you saw these older workers who hadn't been to school, you know, in a long time. And school was you know, they already had families and they'd been working for 10 or 15 years. And now they were suddenly in a classroom again with 18 year olds. And um, but what was interesting, I mean, they're interesting as people, but it was also interesting because we could then compare their 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 what they made of the program and what they got out of it. And really, interestingly, the older students who had not been in class and the students who maybe were not, you know, at the top of their class and heading for college got the most out of the program. Because wow. they had had, because the way, because they had, and I, my theory of it, you know, and who knows, but this is my theory based on these focus groups and, and our survey, was that these were people for whom classroom learning had been difficult in the past. And just put them in a lecture and have someone tell them, here's what the, what the you know, just didn't mean that much to them. Mm-hmm. But once they had this combination that apprenticeship gives you, where you're doing it on the job, and then you kind of wonder, well, how does it work? So then when you go to class and they're telling you how it works, suddenly it's fascinating in a whole new way that's different when the, from when the guy was just telling you abstract principles before you'd been on the job trying to, trying to make the parts go together. And so the practical hands-on experience gave these less good students a way into the academic learning. And once they had a way in, they could handle it fine. They weren't stupid people. They just had never sort of gotten the why of it, kind of, or, you know, why should I learn those abstract principles? Now they had a why. And, you know, they said to a person, they said, we, you know, they, they would, when we, when we talked to them, how would you rate the program? And, you know, what do you think it got out of you, out, what you got out of it? And how important was it for your career? They were significantly more likely to say, that it was really made the difference for them than the bright students. And the bright students also, I mean, everybody loved it. They all ranked the program 96% rankings. You know, they couldn't rank them better. But um, but the older and the less good students ranked it a little bit better even. Well, that's, that's incredible. I think this is exactly the group of people, right, that a lot of our policy uh, makers sort of worry about and don't always come up with great solutions to help, right? So we all know that there's this wave of uh, change within the economy and, you know, whether it's automation or other factors that are driving it, 
Um, we hear a lot about retraining and upskilling, right, from our leaders and infrastructure projects and all these big concepts. Uh, but when the rubber meets the road, often what happens is you get this piecemeal uh, scattering of programs, right, that don't actually address and lead to that kind of follow through and outcomes that you're talking about, which is initially what got me interested was it was so clear that this had follow through. really matters. The design of the programs really matters. Just throwing money at training is, mm -hmm. you know, is, has the same kind of outcome as throwing money at anything. You're not going to get the key thing, what you need. And mm -hmm. we've spent, we've thrown money for years at, through the government at what we call dislocated workers. Mm -hmm. And the programs have been terrible. I mean, but there's, there's the whole shelf of research literature about how, you know, we can't figure out how to help dislocated workers. But that's because these lessons of the intensive employer involvement, the work-based learning component, mm -hmm. uh, um, the finding that adjacent job, you know, doing skills assessment and finding an adjacent job, these new principles haven't been applied to dislocated workers in the past. And, you know, mm -hmm. we're not sure they're all going to work. I mean, you know, that, that, that's the challenge. But the, the hope is that we can do it better this time than we've done it in the past um, and, and, you know, get the system to pivot enough that we're, that we're doing better. Well, I want to dig in, on, since we're talking about the policy side, real quick on that, and then I want to go ahead and talk about how we scale this and how it impacts Texas, since we are a Texas-based think tank. Um, let's talk a little bit about the um, registered apprenticeship program versus the IRAP or industry recognized apprenticeship program. This came up quite a bit, I think, if you're paying attention to this space a couple of years ago and going into this year. And just like to hear how that impacts uh, the FAME program. Yes, and registration is a process where the government, basically a government office, you propose, an employer or school proposes an apprenticeship program and the government scrutinizes it and decides if it's good enough to be called a registered apprenticeship program. Mm -hmm. And that's you know, the, the, in theory, that's quality control, and that's good. Um, you know, let's just say it's not always, it sometimes has more to do with red tape than quality control. And it also has, it has something to do with the fact that labor unions have very good apprenticeship programs and don't necessarily want anyone else offering competitive labor apprenticeship programs. So right. registration is good. It's important. Quality control is important. Registered programs are, you know, great. We want to have more of them. I'm not against them. But mm -hmm. research suggests that there are as many apprenticeship-like programs in America that are not registered as there are registered programs. And that's very tantalizing because we all, everyone who thinks apprenticeship is a good thing wants to scale it. And it's mm -hmm. challenging to scale it. And to think, well, we could double it overnight if if we just counted the ones that the government hadn't approved, that would be that's pretty exciting. The, the question is, do you need some kind of quality control mechanisms? And, you know, if obviously an employer can do whatever he wants, you know, if he doesn't expect any government benefits or anything, we don't mm -hmm. have to have quality control mechanisms. But a lot of, of employers who have these programs would like some of the benefits of apprenticeship, you know, that mm -hmm. you're, and that, you, that we don't give a lot of money to apprenticeship programs, but we do give sort of privileges in the workforce mm -hmm. program and what have you. Mm -hmm. um, and easier paths to licensing often. often. Um, and so the question is, do we need some kind of quality control for these independent programs? And it's a little bit of a contradiction in terms. Like if you're independent and the government's not overseeing you, why are we going to oversee you? But 
the idea would be, and this was Trump's policy, you know, can we create a sort of second track that are these industry-driven apprenticeships that don't have to go through the registration process, but do have some quality control, and um, and then then get some of the privileges of of what a standard apprenticeship gets. And so IRAPS was a is a is a Trump-created policy that I mean I dare say it's going to be one of the first things the Biden uh, Labor Department does is kill it. But um, they created a bunch of um, sort of quality control oversight bodies, and um, that were sort of like accreditors. They were yeah. called SREs. And um, I mean, I think that's an interesting, mo- you, you know, I think what the challenge is we definitely want to somehow start to incorporate and count and lift up and make better unregistered mm-hmm. apprenticeship programming. There's no right. question to that for me. And there's also no question that it's, if we're going to give them government money, we want some level of quality control, government money or government mm-hmm. privileges. So how do you do that with sort of lighter touch? Mm-hmm. I think we should remain, even if this administration is going to scrap the IRAP program because it's a Trump thing, I hope they will not back away from that challenge of mm-hmm. how do we incorporate some of those other programs and have some level of quality control. And, you know, the purists on the Democrat side would say, well, just make, you know, make them get good, make them register. They should register. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't want to register. They don't want this government red tape. They don't want the government, they, what they see as the government in their business. They don't want what they see mm-hmm. as the unions in their business. Mm-hmm. Um, and, so that I don't think that's the answer, you know. Um, and I don't. We'll wait. It'll be in, you know intriguing to see, important to see how this administration handles it. It will be interesting to see, you know, um, the that that issue, right? Of um, let's say unions having you know programs that address these issues. Um, they exist. They've existed for a long time. Um, the, the question is really. Hey, is it enough? I mean, if you look at the scale of the challenge we face in this country right now, and you say, okay, that's wonderful. Glad you all have those programs, but uh, we need a lot more people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Mid-level jobs, mid-skilled jobs, you know. And and I mean, it's it's one aspect of unions that you have to admire. They have these; they're very they're good at training, and they have very good training. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, they in this space, they're operating a little bit like the taxi commission when Uber shows up. Like you know, we already have it cornered. We don't you know, and keep, we're going to keep you interlopers out. And that that's as you say, that's just self you know self defeating for the country. Yeah, well, I love that. Um, aspect of this. There's so many different intertwined issues here from occupational licensing to the union. I mean, it's, it's all, it's all here. Um, Let's talk about Texas. Let's talk about um, how programs like this, you know, especially since we talked about fame, how they operate in Texas, as a matter of fact. And um, we'd love to hear more about that. There's quite a good fame. So fame operates by kind of that it spreads chapters and what it takes to have a chapter is 20 25 companies that come together in a local regional place and adapt the maybe adapt the curriculum although they don't do that much adapting of the curriculum mm-hmm. uh, more likely find the community college and oversee the setting up of the program at the community college and what's good about it it's a little bit like a franchise right because you already have the curriculum which is good you already sort of have the model of doing it which is good you know when companies start over from scratch they don't know how to start an apprenticeship program and why should they and here you kind of get the kit you know <laughs> when you get yeah. the branding and what you have to do is apply it in your place and um so and it and it spreads by you know employer to employer employers have find each other and and come together to do this and there is quite a good uh chapter in san antonio um i i think it's called santa texas fame or something i forget Mm -hmm. um 
I, I remember HEB is one of the big mainstay members, and um, there's you know it's usually big and small companies together, um, and it's it's a good call. It's a good uh, program. Um, I visited. I visited a few of the employers even. Um, the the other interesting thing about Fame is that um, the National Association of Manufacturers has kind of taken over the management of the national network. So, and again, these are only, it's only right now for this one set of occupations, right? Um, mm -hmm. Around manufacturing. But if you're a manufacturer anywhere in Texas and you have 20 buddies that want to come and join a chapter with you, I mean, call the Manufacturing Institute at NAM. They will be, you know, at your elbow in five minutes. Um, they are, their goal is to scale this. And they, you know, again, they'll bring you the kit. It'll be here, mm -hmm. here's the franchise. Now all you have to do is sort of take it and run with it. Um, you know, for other employers in other sectors, there isn't such a nice little thing already set up where the curriculum's been set up and the, and the um, you know, how to set up the program has been set up. Right. Um, I'm working with the, um, the people who do the automotive certifications to try to create a program like okay. that, where, again, the point would be every little employer doesn't have to make their up their own thing. They can get it from a larger body that had the resources to think it through and, 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 you know, pay for the development, but fame, you can definitely, if you're a manufacturing employer, just call, call Gardner Carrick at the manufacturing Institute. He'll help you. That is fantastic. I, I love that because it really doesn't, um, it doesn't leave out the small guys, right? right. If they're in an area and, and provided there are enough of them, they can help be part of this. Um, so a lot of times, you know, these big companies like Toyota, they have the resources to create, you know, wonderful uh, tracks. But, you know, there are a lot of entrepreneurs out there who run small shops and maybe they need some employees too. Yep. No, exactly. And they don't, and the beauty of fame is you don't need to hire because you don't, not every small company needs to hire some young people every year. So, and, and certainly no small company can, you know, no community college can teach a class with like less than 13 or 15 or whatever it is in that system. So the point here is, you know, if 15 small companies need one guy each that year, you already have a cohort. And it, there is, it is an investment, right? An apprenticeship is an investment. And so what you have to invest in for, for the, as the company, you have to pay the guy a wage, right? Or the, or the woman. The, the trainee gets a wage and it's usually lower than the, well, it's always lower than a skilled person in that field would have, but mm -hmm. it, you know, you're in, in Kentucky, what they require in fame, what they require is you need to pay them at least enough to cover their college costs. Mm -hmm. So um, that kid, you know, that, that we are basically, you, you graduate from college debt free because mm -hmm. the employer has paid you enough to cover your costs. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's one cost for the employer. And the other cost for the employer is, you know, the time and effort that you put into going to the meetings and picking the kids and wrangling with the community college and all that stuff. And the mm -hmm. third cost is, is mentoring on the job, right? Because mm -hmm. you don't just throw these young, these young or old people into the workplace and say, rats a rock, right? You right. need to help them and you need to make sure that the, what they're learning is you know, related to what they're doing in class so that the, that you get the kind of synergy you need. And that's, a that's you know, it's not a full-time person usually, but it's somebody whose time you're taking to be a mentor. And there's skills involved in mentoring. Um, you know, it's, you, you know, you, you're not exactly the teacher and you're not exactly the buddy. And, you know, you're trying to help somebody who's a little bit different from you. And so what I found, and this is, I would say, fame's 
we're fame, you know, there's room for improvement, so to speak. The, the, the structuring of the work-based learning and the mentoring is uneven across companies. So Toyota mm-hmm. does it really well. Some other companies don't do it so well. The, the apprentices know this because they talk to each other. So they yeah. grumble to each other, you know, oh, my mentor is great. And the other one says, oh, my mentor, you know, I've never met him. And like, I, you know, I'm only following somebody around at work. I'm not really learning. And that's a place where, where more, more, we need more work needs to be done. Because again, it's hard if you're running a big company or a little company, you don't really have time to think about how am I going to do the mentoring? So they need more help from the, from, from the, from the franchisor, so to speak, and how to, how to structure the mentoring. Well, I'm thinking about that. I mean, a lot of this, I love this because it's really employers creating their own talent pipeline, right? So it's rethinking the way HR works, right? The way HR has worked is we just throw this big old wide net and just hope the right person comes along and fits the skills, just happens to be the right person for the job. Um, This apprenticeship way of thinking is a little different. Yes, there's still an investment. And by the way, HR is an investment too. Um, but the investment is let's let's take a bet. Let's get some people trained up exactly the way we want. And it, I think it probably. I mean, I'm not I'm not an economist, <laughs> but my guess is that probably has a big big payoff. Yeah, no, exactly right. Well, I mean, two things. One is that the you know, buying off the shelf, so to speak, as you described, that's expensive too, because turnover is expensive. Turnover is very expensive, stunningly expensive, thousands of a year, depending on what industry you're in. Um, the The time that the job goes empty is expensive. The training of the new people is expensive. So, you know, long term retention is much better for a company. Um, so, so grow your own is sort of what you're talking about, you know, and that's a really appealing notion. And and apprenticeship does develop sort of engender loyalty, right? Like you train there and now you know the culture. It's also a chance for sort of both of them to kind of in a way date before they get married. You know, the employer can can takes a bet on a person, but he gets to see him for two or three years and sees how he does. And the and the trainee learns the culture of the company and is getting paid and he has to be they have to be learning industry-wide skills i mean that's kind of part of the definition of can't just be you're only learning what to do at toyota um but um and 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 the other good thing for the roi for the employer is that pretty shortly into the span of the apprenticeship the apprentice is actually doing productive work maybe not as productive as a journeyman but they're contributing to the real you know what you're doing at the company but pretty early on so you're getting the roi back that way and you're reducing the turnover and you're um you know getting getting loyalty and long-term retention so i mean the the idea is it's a good bet for employers and there have been people who've tried to quantify it i don't know if it's the kind of thing you really can quantify but there's certainly an argument there yeah i think it's got to be non-trivial and I've, I've tried to find you know that exact thing too and i think it really probably depends on the industry and a lot of variables there, but, you know, and, going and from a lot of companies, it's harder because they don't have the cat, you know, they don't have the resources to the margins to invest. Um, but I think it's, an, you know, as a long-term investment, I think it's a good bet. Yeah. Um, going from what employers can learn and how they can change and adapt to this new 21st century we, we, we've been in for 21 years now. Um, let's talk about how community colleges can evolve. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about some of the obstacles there because, couple things you said earlier really stuck with me, which is employers are in the driver's seat and they're selecting the community college. So let's talk about that for a second. Yeah. So every community college 
or mo yeah, I would say every community college by now has gotten the, the, the message. They got the memo that it works better. Workforce training works better if you have an employer partner. But an employer partner can mean so many things. An employer partner can mean what fame shows us, which is really close. And the North Carolina program, too, by the way, really close day to day cooperation where the employer knows exactly what's going on and is telling the school exactly what to do and is really involved in it and is making a commitment to hire people. That's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum, I literally met someone once at the community college who said, oh, I got three new employer partners today. I sat next to three HVAC guys at the Rotary Club and we had a conversation. And, you know, that might have been valuable. She might have learned something from those guys about automation and the HVAC or something. But that is not the same as a fame partnership. And the problem is that we don't neither we as you know people like me who think about this nor colleges have a vocabulary to distinguish these different kinds of things you know in, there, i used, I, I don't know if this is even true but i learned it in, in in college um you know in english there's one word for snow there are eskimo nations that have 26 words for snow and you know employer partnership is like that we ought to have 26 words or, or a taxonomy and we don't really have that and so every college will tell you i have lots of employer partners but and typically what they do is they meet at an advisory council. And some advisory councils are useful, but some advisory councils, they meet once a year, the faculty does most of the talking, and at the end, the employers go, sounds good. And the employers aren't planning to hire any of those people anyway, so they don't really care if it's good or not. They're just checking the box that they came to the thing. And the college thinks it got input, but it didn't really. And so... I think there's a lot of learning to be had. I mean, and those these are the good cases, right? There's there's other colleges where they just say employers. How could I possibly meet or deal with employers? You know, and and the two do come from different planets, right? I mean, employers are from Mars, educators are from Venus. They're very different, so it's hard, but it's essential, and it's essential that it be done at a pretty high level of the game. It doesn't always need to be as high level as fame. You can have more casual or you know, not so intensive, but still valuable if the information exchange is good. But, mm -hmm. but it definitely, it's definitely a challenge and something that a lot of colleges are working on, but could, could work on better, could do, could do better. What are, I mean, in your, in your experience, and you can tell me if you don't know, it's, it's really more just an informational question. Um, are there specific policy obstacles that you can identify or is it more of a, a culture thing? Policy can help. I mean, so for example, in um, a policy I like a lot in North Carolina, this is why I actually was in North Carolina, why I met Brian Coward, is that um, if you're, you know, every every state, at least before COVID and probably will resume after COVID, was trying to lure new companies to the state. And in many places, they just give them money and in many, or, you know, build a road or build an airport or something. And in many places, they say, here's money for training, use it however you want. North Carolina says, we'll help subsidize training, but it has to go through a community college. And so that meant that basically the state played matchmaker for this company, this Aeros, Aeros Aer, what's it called? Spirit Aerosystems was the company in, the, in this case, and Lenore Community College. And, you know, they would not, they were not looking for a date with each other, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> and the, and the, 
and the state policy brought them together and they and they for you know the first program was just to train workers it was a private program wasn't open to anyone else except for the company's mm-hmm. hires was just to mm-hmm. fill the plant and then gradually mm-hmm. the relationship evolved 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 till they were training other people like Brian Coward who you know were um and so policy can help, can help bring them together. Mm-hmm. Policy can, um, that's the best thing policy can do, I think. Mostly mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's about, I mean, it's about, it's about both educators and employers seeing the synergy and, mm-hmm. and there are tips and tricks to it, you know, <laughs> and, the, and, the, and you have to learn the tips and tricks and you have to learn what you're aiming for. I mean, I think that's the phase we're at now where so many mm-hmm. colleges can say we, we have employer partners, we want employer partners, but they don't really know what they're aiming for. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I think, I think government can help at some level. I mean, apprenticeship in a way we're holding out a kind of model and we're saying mm-hmm. this is what you should be aiming for. And that's helpful. We meaning the government, you know, people mm-hmm. like me, researchers, um, the trouble with that is apprenticeship is one model, but apprenticeship mm-hmm. is kind of like the Maserati. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, and what Brian Coward had was sort of like the Buick or the, you know, Chevy or something. Mm-hmm. There are many mm-hmm. different ways at this where you have employer-driven training executed by somebody else, probably a community mm-hmm. college. You know, sometimes it's two years and you end up with a degree and there's, you know, mm-hmm. work and school at the same time. Sometimes it's much simpler. And we only hold out that one model, that, 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 you know, Mercedes or whatever it is, Maserati model. We don't hold out any of these simpler models. And I think we should. That's, I think government could do more of that. Right. It's, uh, it's interesting because I think the, the mental model that we've all kind of got in our head of college last two or four years, a semester, 15 weeks, whatever it is, right? Those mental models are holding uh, back, scaling these kinds of programs. And frequently, I think employers are a little bit maybe not really willing to work with uh, educators because they've heard things or they've had bad experiences. Um, And so it's an opportunity for leadership, I think, among our community colleges uh, to step up and really find those opportunities and and take the chance on something that's a little bit bigger and bolder. I think it's both. I mean, I think I think it's both the employers and the community colleges need to, you know, it does, it does take two. And I mean, and again, they are very different. I get it. You know, employers want it to happen tomorrow. Colleges mm-hmm. plan for two years. You know, employers, <laughs> colleges like to go to meetings and talk about how they're going to do it. Employers <laughs> want it to have, you know, again, they, they want action. They want results. They're very, they use different language. You know, it's, it's, it's yeah. really different cultures. Um, and, and and you're right, it's not even bad experience. It's just like, they don't trust that anything good is going to come of it. Like, why should I right. have a lot of time in that? What good is going to come of it? And that's why fame is sort of interesting, because it can show you, well, we have a way that you could be pretty sure some good is going to come of it. Um, and they both think they, colleges tend to think they know what's right, and they know how to teach, and they have good curriculum, and they don't need employers. And um, so that there's 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 attitudes have to change on both sides, uh, and right. employers have to and employers more employers have to come to the table. Frankly, mm-hmm. uh, they're not enough employers who who right. partner in these ways. The the government government job training doesn't help either, right? Or the way government funding flows, mm-hmm. because again, if you can only use your Pell Grant at a at a at a semester length community college program, mm-hmm. and there's no requirement that there be any employers involved, that doesn't send a very good signal. And there's the workforce system, which also has some money and incentives mm-hmm. for employers to get involved in workforce mm-hmm. training. But it's very hard to you know it's a big government bureaucracy, and you have to deal with the government bureaucracy. And so so you know when government tries to help, it's not always that helpful because of what you get with it. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> yeah, sometimes the best thing it can do is get out of the way. Um, this has been extremely interesting to me. I feel like I've learned so much today. Uh, I'm sure, you know, our listeners will have questions and probably want to follow up on this, but I would love to just sort of leave it open to you. Do you have any charges for our listeners? Anything you'd like for them to research or look into? I do, especially for your community college listeners. So um, we have, uh, my organization is doing a national survey of community college workforce education to try to find out exactly along the conversation, we, we lines of the conversation we've been having, how deep do some of these, everybody's talking about change now in community colleges, but how deep does it go? What are your employer partnerships really like? How much workforce education are you really offering? How much workforce education is really geared to a job as opposed to just some curriculum some professor had on the shelf? For 20 years. So we have a national survey in the field that's for community colleges to fill out. And about a third of the, and it's not, the survey is sort of misleading because it's not like, how was your Instacart guy? It's, you know, 50 hard questions that you have to provide data about your college. About a third of the community colleges in the country have filled it out and it's open for another week, 10 days. Um, so if you're a community college administrator and you haven't done it, please go to our website and find it and, or send me an email and, and, um, participate because we want you know we want and we think it's important i mean why it's important not just for the sake of research like you know um, research for research sake it's nice but um in texas i um you know the the state higher the texas higher education um what do we call it coordinating board wanted results early so that they could take the results and talk to the legislature about what they need about in this investments they need in workforce education and the point is you know if i'm a governor and i have a dwindling pile of cash and I'm trying to think where to spend it, you know, am I going to spend it on a school where less than half of the people graduate on time? Probably not. Am I going to send it on a school, which is what most what most people know about community colleges, or am I going to spend it on a school that's preparing people to go back to work in in-demand jobs and high-growth industries? I might spend the money there. And if, if we can help lawmakers know about what community colleges are doing to put people back to work, we think that's really important. And that's what we're trying to do with the survey. So it's not just, you know, it does take some time on the part of the college, but we think it will come back to you in the form of um, you know, increased funding, increased, increased, um, you know, role. About half of Texas community colleges have filled it out, which means that about half have not. And um, if they're listening, I hope they'll consider it. Well, I do too. Um, you know, part of this is is giving um, taxpayers visibility on how these dollars are spent, right? So, I mean, to your point, um, we do spend a lot of money on education every year, and Texas spends quite a bit on CTE and other related things. And it's because I think as a state, we're, we are committed to having people find those jobs that are great. But at the same time, you know, there does have to be some angle of accountability. So um, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the opportunity, Erin. It's really a pleasure to talk to your audience, talk to you and talk to your audience. Wonderful. Well, I hope we get a chance to talk again soon. In the meantime, please take care. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of the Road to Recovery podcast. Life in a post-COVID economy will depend on the creative responses that are arising all around us. 